Father's Day again. Uh, I, I just laughed my head off when uh, during the worship, Ricky said, Happy Mother's Day, and a couple people clapped. He goes, Wait, it's not about you. Because, like, no mom has ever had to swallow that pill before, right? <laughs> it's not about you. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose you moms can handle that. Um, I want to uh, just uh, welcome you this morning and I encourage you to get your Bibles out and get them ready. We're going to be in the book of 1 John. Um, and we have been in the book of 1 John now for a little while. And we're just sort of taking it verse by verse and working our way through. Today we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 2. So if you're kind of um, trying to find your way through your Bible and figure that out, it's all the way toward the back. Don't get caught in the Gospel of John, which is a big book near the front of the New Testament. 1 John is a small book near the back in the New Testament. Um, and, and we've been uh, talking a little bit about this theme of light and darkness and We've already um, sort of unpacked that quite a bit, and I want to pick this up now in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we're just going to read the first couple of verses together. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I think it's important, before we get into the rest of this passage, for us to just stop and think for a second, because one of the things you're going to find with John is that uh, he doesn't pull any punches. All throughout 1 John, he jumps right in, sticks his finger in your chest, and says, some things need to change. And, and that's a little hard to deal with. That's a little challenging when you feel like, gosh, I opened the Word of God. I just want to get encouraged. I just want to be blessed. I just want to see a verse that says everything's going to be all right. And then John hits me with this stuff about, you better stop sinning. That, well, that's not what I wanted to hear. That's not what hardly anybody wants to hear. Um, but it's interesting to me that in chapter 2, he begins with this phrase, my little children. Like, what an interesting thing to call us, my little children. He's trying to set a tone. He's trying to help us to understand that he's sort of, it's a pastoral tone. He's trying to say, listen, um, I care about you. I'm I'm not telling you the things that I'm telling you because I want to blast you or I want to make you feel bad or I want to judge you. I'm telling you the things that I'm telling you because I want to make you successful. We don't talk about light and darkness as a way to categorize people. Those are the dark people and those are the light people. We don't talk about light and darkness as a way to judge people and stand and look look down on somebody and go, boy, you're just stuck in darkness. But we talk about these truths of light and darkness because it's really about helping people. It's really about setting people free. Too many people judge others and point fingers and point out the sins of others as a way to make themselves sort of feel better by comparison. That is not what John is trying to do. And man, that better not be what we're trying to do. We better not have this attitude that says, you know, somehow because God was gracious to me and somehow because I heard the gospel, somehow because I'm sitting in a church building this morning when I could be so many other places doing so many bad things, somehow I'm better than other people. That is not what John is getting at and that better not be our attitudes either. On Mother's Day, it's interesting to think about this because this is kind of a parenting principle. As, as moms or parents, we don't put rules into the lives of our kids 
and hold them accountable and call them out when they mess up because we're trying to destroy them, do we? No, why do we do that? Because we want to help them, right? Because we love them. Now, try to explain that to a 10-year-old. You've got a battle on your hands, right? But, but as parents, we know that. What, what we're trying to do is we're trying to help them get on a path to success. When I was a young youth pastor, uh, there was a senior pastor in our church and, you know, he, was, he and I became really close and he just built into me and helped me grow as a young Christian. And, and um, one of the things he used to always say to me, well, not always, but sometimes he would say to me, now, I'm just trying to help you be successful. And I always knew I was in deep trouble as soon as he said that. I just want you to know, I'm trying to make you successful. Whenever he said that, I went, oh, what did I do? Because then he was going to have to tell me about something that needed to change in my life, right? And to this day, he and I are still close friends. And every now and then, he will say to me, now, I'm just trying to help you be successful. <laughs> and, and it's that sort of loving, parenting, pastoral tone that says, I'm not telling you the things that are hard to hear because I love the terrified look on your face when I tell you. I'm telling you the things that are hard to hear because some of them you need to hear. And if you don't hear them, you're not going to change. And if you don't change, you're not going to experience the blessedness that the scripture talks about. And when you don't experience those blessings, you're going to shrug your shoulders and go, where's this abundant life that I heard all about? And so he says, I need to share some things with you. And that's basically what John does with us in 1 John. It's always, always better to walk in the light. And he's just trying to help us learn to walk in the light. A couple of months ago, I was on the freeway. It was about one o'clock in the morning. And I'm driving on the freeway, and there is a guy up ahead. And he is drifting into this lane. And then he is drifting into this lane. And then he's slowing down. And then he's drifting again, right? You guys have seen this. This is not a good thing to see on the freeway at one in the morning, is it? And so what do you do? You slow down, you back up, or else you speed up and pass him, right? But you do not want to be a part of what's about to happen. And you see this guy, and he's going back and forth. And then you see those signs that they have up on the freeway now. It says, call 911 and report drunk driving. So I call 911 and report this guy. And then I move over to the side and let him go by. Now, why do I do that? Is it because I hate this dude and I want to make sure he gets in trouble and spends the night in jail? No, it's because if he keeps driving and he's under the influence, he is likely to hurt himself and he's likely to hurt somebody else, right? So in an effort to help him, you get in the way and say, hey, stop what you're doing. And basically, <clears throat> that's what John's trying to do for us. It should be that you care enough to protect somebody, not because you're trying to hurt them. It's never about punishment. It's about forgiveness. It's about freedom. That's why in last week we looked at chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's why he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, that we, and he says in the second half of verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If anybody sins, we have an advocate. Let's not forget that. That's the good news. 
if you sin, if you sin, you have an advocate. And, and it says you have an advocate and he himself, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sins. Now, I know that that word propitiation is a word that you probably used in a sentence three or four times already today, right? <laughs> so it's one of these big $10 Bible words, and we read that and go, I have no idea what that means. So, so let's take a second and think about this. He is our advocate. Now, most of us are familiar with that term. We know that an advocate is basically at, at an attorney, Right? A lawyer who goes to bat for you and argues on your behalf, right? It's someone who stands up for you and helps you. We have, if we sin, this advocate named Jesus, one who stands up for us, one who protects us, one who argues our case. And the scripture tells us that ever since he rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father where he constantly advocates for us. He's our advocate. But it also says that he is our propitiation. And propitiation is a different kind of word. The word propitiation really means two things. First of all, the, the word is used to talk about appeasing someone's wrath. It's about when somebody is really angry, coming along and getting them to let go of their wrath. And the second thing that it's about is being reconciled to God. So Jesus comes and he says, I will be the propitiation. I will be the one who appeases the wrath of God by taking on the wrath. Remember back uh, just a month or so ago, we were at Good Friday and Easter, and we talked about how in the, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is sweating blood and he's falling down and he's crying out and he's saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, don't make me drink this cup. And the cup is the cup of God's wrath, but he drank the cup. And because he took on the wrath of God on the cross, we get to be set free from our sin. And in so doing, he reconciles us where our sin had built up a wall between us and God that was so high we would never have any chance to get over it. He blows the wall away and restores us to our relationship with God. So he's saying, listen, I've been talking already a lot about sin, and I'm going to talk some more about sin, and I'm not going to let you off the hook, and I'm not going to let you squirm away, and I'm not going to let you think, oh, sin, that's something the bad people do, but it's not something I do. We're all going to have to look in the mirror and face the fact that we have a problem with sin. He's not going to let us get away with not, not facing that. But, little children, you have an advocate, but, little children, you have a propitiation. You have one that has already uh, appeased the wrath of God. You have one who has already reconciled us to him. Now, remember we said that John wrote this uh, in great degree to correct the heresy of his day. And the big heresy of his day was Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was something similar to, to the modern New Age movement. The idea is that, is that you know, uh, everything that is real is spirit, but anything that is not spirit is not real. So in, a, in essence, we're living in a dream world. You're, you're not, I mean, you're real, you exist as an essence, but your body, that's not real. This, this room is not real, the chairs are not real, nothing physical is real. And so it's sort of like you're dreaming, 
So think of this. If you're having a dream, and I know some of you have had this very dream. You're having a dream, and in that dream, you kill somebody. Are you actually guilty of murder? No, it's just a dream, right? You didn't really kill somebody. You're not really guilty. Well, Gnosticism would argue that we're not really guilty of any sins because none of this is real anyway. So whatever you do with your body, whatever you do with your mind, doesn't really matter because it's not real anyway. And so they taught that sin wasn't real. But here's the problem. Sin is real. And the consequences of sin are horrible. Both the immediate and the eternal consequences of sin are horrible. But redemption and its corresponding forgiveness are also real in the person of Jesus Christ. So the message of the gospel is not, you are all a bunch of terrible sinners and you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. The message of the gospel is, we are all caught up in sin and God has made a way to set us free. So that's what has to protect us against this attitude of judgmentalism, against this idea that somehow we're holier than thou, that somebody else is lesser than we, or that somehow if I just perform a little better than you know, the bad guys, then maybe I'll be okay with God. All of that stuff is baloney. It all comes down to God's grace. The message of the gospel is that he has made a way for us to be restored to God. But if you ask most unbelievers in our culture today, they will say that the Christians they know are preaching the first message more than the second one. You're all a bunch of sinners. You're all a bunch of losers. We're better than you. That's what we keep hearing every time research is done on what unbelievers think about the church. So before we dig any more into this discussion of sin and righteousness, and light, and darkness, and obedience, and disobedience. Let's recommit to this idea that Jesus gives us in his own person. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. And that, that we don't ever have to choose between, on the one hand, being gracious, and on the other hand, being truthful. So John is going to take it from that perspective and he's going to say, I'm going to tell you the truth and that truth is going to help you to live in the grace of God. So sometimes we're confused with a biblical truth and we just don't quite get it. It just doesn't make sense to us. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I don't worship a God like that or, or you know, the God that I worship would never... You read some Old Testament story and they wiped out a whole town and, and you go, well, the God I worship would never. And you go, yeah, I really don't want to worship a God like that either. I mean, a wrathful God? I, I want a God that's just loving and kind and forgiving and doesn't have any standards and therefore everybody is in the same level and it's no big deal to God. I want a God like that. Well, listen, you can want whatever God you want. You can create in your own mind some kind of a God who fits your description of what a good God would be like, but the scripture tells us what our God actually is like. And sometimes I'm not comfortable with it. Some of the stuff I see about God, I'm like, ooh, I'm not only not comfortable with the times when God shows his wrath to people who I think maybe don't even deserve it, I'm also not comfortable with the time God shows his grace to people who I think ought to get wrath. There's so many times I'm confused by what God does. 
and it doesn't make any sense to me. There's a, there's a syndrome called the Galileo syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, basically, it goes back to Aristotle and then forward to Galileo. And, and I don't know if this is even a true story or if it's just sort of legendary. I was not there. You could maybe ask Jim Thompson. He could tell you. But I don't know. <laughs> Aristotle basically taught, in terms of physics, Aristotle taught what everybody believed, which is that if you have two objects and one is heavier than the other and you drop them, the heavier one will fall faster than the lighter one, right? Duh, obvious. Everybody knows that. Except one thing. It's not actually true, right? Galileo comes along all this time after Aristotle. Nobody's ever questioned. Aristotle is like a, a brain on a stick, right? This guy knows all kinds of stuff. And Aristotle's teaching these things, and you're like, well, that makes total sense. Why would anyone question it? And it does make sense. And Galileo comes along and goes, you know, guys, I dropped two things, and they, they fell at the same rate, even though they were different weight. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. There's no way, because we all know we never even question this. It's obviously true. If something weighs more, it's going to fall faster than the thing that is lighter. So what Galileo does is he gathers a bunch of the scientists and the philosophers of his day, all there in Italy around the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and he goes up to the top of the tower, and he has in his hand a, a cannonball, and in the other hand, a musket ball. And while they all watch, he drops them both, and they hit the ground at the exact same time. He says, see, it doesn't matter which is heavier and which is lighter. They will fall at the same rate. And you know what the scientist said? Nah. <laughs> we think you're wrong. It's some sort of witchcraft, <laughs> some sort of trickery. There's no way that could be true. And it took a long time for the scientific community, even having seen what was true, to accept that what was true was actually true when it just didn't make sense to them. And that's what a whole bunch of theologians have done. And when I talk about theologians, I'm talking about the kinds of theologians who write for theological journals and have a bunch of letters after their name. And I'm talking about the kind of theologians who are driving down the 605 freeway, listening to classic rock and thinking about God, right? We're all theologians. Some of us are just better at it than others, okay? And theologians for the longest time have said... What makes sense to me is going to be the way I see God. And what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ and in his word is he has said, let me reveal myself to you so you will know me. And it doesn't matter what makes sense to you. It matters what I say. Nobody believed Galileo, so they just went on teaching that objects of a different weight will fall at a different rate. But we don't get to do that with the word of God. Okay, here's something you can, you can take to the bank. God is right about everything. Amen? He, okay, and so you, you might be smart. You might have a different perspective. I'm telling you, God is right about everything. By the way, he has the credentials. He created the universe. He made each one of us individually and knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows what is right. He knows what is wrong. You know how? Because he determines what is right and what is wrong. He's God. And we have to recognize him and put him in that, in that place. What he says is correct, whether we like it or not, and whether we understand it or not. I wanted to establish that truth. 
Because as we continue here in chapter 2 of 1 John, there's going to be some stuff that he's going to say that goes against what most people just naturally believe. And we're going to have to grapple with whether it's true or not. Pick it up in verse 3. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought also himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Pretty clear, right? Pretty straightforward. There's no beating around the bush. You don't need me to define any Greek terms for you. It's very basic. It's very clear. You can read it in any language, and it says the same thing, that as real Christians, we are characterized by obedience. That's what it says. If you are His, you keep His commands. If you are genuinely saved, you will walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Now, I know that that makes you go, hey, but wait a minute. Yeah, but what about? And what about so-and-so? And and we have all of these questions that come up. And yet, let's take it at least at face value and say, if God says it, it is true. Okay? It's not about having all your doctrine right. It's not about memorizing a bunch of scripture. It is about knowing Jesus Christ and becoming more and more like him. That's what it looks like to be a real Christian. So here's the question. Is it the norm in my life to obey God's commands? Is it the norm in my life to obey God's commands. Not, am I perfect? John has already made it very clear. None of us is perfect, whether we're Christians or not. Okay? Not, do I ever sin? John has already made it abundantly clear that we all still commit sins, and if we say that we don't commit sins, we are a liar, right? So we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about having arrived. All of us are still struggling. We're making our way and we're on different paths and moving at different paces. But it is a fair question according to this passage to ask ourselves, is it the norm in my life to obey God's commands? Do I make it a point to do what he asked me to do? Do I walk in the same manner that Jesus walked? Now, last week we talked about light and darkness. We said that basically light is goodness and darkness is wrongdoing. And when he's talking about light and darkness, he's talking about the basics that everybody pretty much agrees upon. It's easy to tell light from darkness. You don't get confused. Go, is that light or is that darkness? You can tell, right? You know it when you see it and there's not much to debate. It is good to be kind to others, light. It is bad to be mean to others, darkness. Everybody knows that. It is good to work hard and provide for yourself and others, light. It is bad to steal from others, darkness. It is good to tell the truth, light. It is bad to lie, darkness. It is good to root for UCLA, light. (laughs) And it is bad to root for that other team across town which shall not be mentioned in the house of the Lord, darkness. Everybody knows these things. You see my point? (laughs) The last one's more debatable. But 
But when he's talking about light and darkness, he's talking about these things that anybody can tell the difference, right? But he is going to take this to a whole other level in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, he basically says, we're supposed to walk like Jesus walked. Talk about raising the bar. And I was kind of okay with the light and darkness thing. Okay, I'll, you know, I'm, I'll do the stuff that everybody kind of agrees is good, and I'll try to avoid the stuff that everybody agrees is bad. But when he says, you know what? If you're actually a Christian, that means you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're actually going to walk in the same manner that he walked. Now, would you not agree, whatever your theological persuasion, would you not agree that if you just look at the historical record of Jesus in his time on earth, that the way that he lived and the things that he taught were good, that, that he was an incredibly great example. Even those people who deny that he is God, even those people who deny that he is the only way to salvation, always will say he is a good man, a good teacher, a good example. If we lived like he lived and if we did the things that he taught, the world would be a better place, right? Jesus set an example for us. So if Jesus is going to be our example, I'm going to say that the bar is pretty high, really high. And that may seem crazy to you. It may make you want to just throw your hands in the air and go, well, if I got to be like Jesus, then forget it. I have so far to go, might as well forget about it now. But even though it seems crazy to you, God said it, so it's right. What are we going to do with that? Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the way that Jesus turned the whole religious world upside down in just one simple sermon, right? He says, listen, everyone agrees you shall not murder. It's an obvious light and darkness issue. Everyone knows that. Everyone in every culture understands that. You shall not murder. That's a bad thing to do. And then Jesus goes, but I say to you, don't even hate anyone, not even your worst enemy. That's raising the bar. He says, now you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Everybody knows it's wrong to commit adultery. Even adulterers know it's wrong to commit adultery. But then he says, but don't even allow any lust in your heart. Oh, that's raising the bar. And every time he raises the bar, I get convicted. Because every time he raises the bar, I realize maybe I'm not walking in the light quite as much as I think I'm walking in the light. When Jesus and his teaching and his behavior becomes our standard, we are being called to a higher plane of living. Amen? And that can be troubling. Because here's the problem. There is no way to walk like Jesus. That would be supernatural. Exactly. And that's John's point. He's saying there is, there is a way for you to actually live in the same pattern that Jesus lived. But it's supernatural. You're going to have to be empowered by the Spirit of God to do it. You show me somebody who gets 100% right on the Bible quiz, and I will show you an intelligent person who studied hard. But you show me somebody who walks like Jesus walked, and I will show you a born-again, spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ, because there's no other way to explain that. That 
by definition, is a genuine Christian. And here's the point, and some of us may not like it, but according to Scripture, the surest sign of genuine Christianity is not baptism, it's not church membership, it is not confirmation, it is not that you said the sinner's prayer. The surest sign of genuine Christianity is a changed life that is continuing to change. None of us have arrived. None of us is perfect. We're all still dealing with the flesh. We're all still stumbling from time to time. But a life that is changing and has been changing since the time that Christ became a part of your life. Now, I say this and I want to take on the spirit of John when I say, little children, I'm saying this because I care. Because you may be listening to this today and going, I thought when I was a kid... At VBS, they said, if you want to go to heaven, raise your hand and pray this prayer. I thought this was settled. Nothing has really changed in my life, but I remember that day. We wrote it in the back of a little children's Bible, and they gave it to me to take home. I keep it in a drawer somewhere. I I think I'm okay with God. But in an effort to help us actually experience abundant life... I got to tell you the truth. That's not the way I read the scripture. If you are genuinely a child of God, there is evidence of his activity in your life. Not perfection, but evidence. Christianity is not like some club that you join or some affiliation that you have. You can join a political party and vote the opposite of your party every election. You can be a resident of a city and not get involved in city activities at all. You can join a country club and never play golf. You could go to AA meetings and drink yourself to sleep every night. Being affiliated with something is not the same as being transformed. You cannot be a genuine Christian without being a follower of Christ. There is no such thing. I'm sorry. There's no such thing. It's impossible. If you blow God off, you don't know Him. And if you know Him, you cannot consistently blow Him off. And I know this is hard to hear and it's even harder to apply, but let's just deal with the truth. God calls us to be obedient and He calls us to be obedient even when it's inconvenient. Obedience is not negotiable for a follower of Jesus. I want you to think about first in 1 Samuel, take your Bibles, go to the Old Testament, pretty far back into the Old Testament, come to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Some of you are familiar with this, uh, this guy. His name is King Saul. He was the first king of Israel. And he was chosen for his great qualifications. And his qualifications were he was incredibly handsome and very tall. And that's why the people wanted him to be their king. And so they begged God, and God finally said, fine, you want this guy for your king? Have him. And so Saul becomes the king, 
And there's a guy named Samuel who is a prophet of God, and God speaks through Samuel, and Samuel is kind of the religious leader, the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel, and Saul becomes its political leader. And basically, Samuel is always coming to Saul and saying, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? Because Saul is just living by the flesh. And so one time, God, through Samuel, gives a very clear direction to Saul. It's in chapter 15, 1 Samuel. Verse 1, then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek, that's a, that's a neighboring nation, for what he did to Israel, how he set himself up against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I don't like that verse. There's several others in the Old Testament similar to it. They make me uncomfortable, but I'm going to let God be God. And I'm going to say that God understands why this is a just judgment on the Amalekites for coming against the people of God and trying to keep them from God's promises. And he says, I want everything there wiped out. It's pretty clear. So Saul summoned the people, he numbered them, and he goes on, he gets this army, and he goes in and he attacks Amalek. And when he attacks Amalek, he tears them apart. And pick it up in verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites... From Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Is that obedience? No. Now, if you ask Saul, and he's going to ask Saul, he will have a good explanation. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't, it, it is, it is just a crazy thing to do. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and he has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. For himself, he set up a monument. And then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, like a, like a father, he said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Do you see the progression here? He stops in one town and builds a monument to himself. Then he leaves there and he goes down and when he sees Samuel, he says, I have carried out the command of the Lord. And then Samuel goes, no, you haven't. You kept the king and all of the livestock. And he goes, well, they, do you see the subject changed? They, the people, they took some of that stuff, you know, 
I mean, the worthless stuff they got, but, you know, why would you waste good stuff? That doesn't make any sense. They did that. And, and by the way, why did they do that? Verse 15, to sacrifice to the Lord. They had religious reasons, right? And Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. It's like talking to your children, isn't it? I did obey to the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen, choices of the things devoted to destruction, and sacrificed the Lord your God of Gilgal. Samuel said, verse 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Oh, it's almost like God really takes this stuff seriously. That, that it really actually bothers him when we don't obey him. And it, he had great excuses. It just doesn't make any sense. In fact, that, that, that reminds me, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. You can just write it in your notes. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 basically said this. You guys know this verse. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, says the Lord, and so are my ways higher than your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my thoughts and my ways above your thoughts and your ways. So you can have all the logic and all the reasoning and all the reasons that it wasn't convenient to do exactly what God called you to do and how you thought better of it, but if the word of God tells you what to do, he expects you to obey, whether it's convenient or not. Too many of us, you know, we're this way with God. You ever notice that many of us when we were kids knew much better than our parents Remember that? Remember when you knew everything and your parents were idiots? Some of you maybe are young enough in this room to say, yeah, that sounds right. But you get to a certain age and you go, oh my goodness. Mom and dad are not as stupid as I thought, right? But there's no way when you're 10, 12, 14, 16 that you can have the perspective of a person who's 30, 40, 50, or 60, right? You have to live that long to have that perspective. There is just some stuff you don't understand. And if we could get this with God and realize, I don't care, if you've lived as long as Jim, you're not as old as God, right? You could be really old and you don't hold a candle to God's wisdom, God's insight, God's knowledge, God's understanding. And, and doesn't it just take a little bit of wisdom to realize that if we have a God who is that much wiser than we are, maybe we ought to follow him, especially if he loves us as he's proven that he does.
whether it's convenient or not. Another thing I want you to realize is that God calls us to obey even when it doesn't make sense. Remember Abraham, Genesis chapter 12? He's doing fine. He's living in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's wealthy. He's got all of his family around him. He has a support system built in. He is having a great life. And all of a sudden, God comes up and says, listen, I want you to leave your father, your, your land, your family, everything behind, everything you've known, and I want you to follow me. Well, okay, where are we going? I'll let you know when you get there. Really? just follow you? Yes, follow me. And Abraham gets up and follows him. Makes no sense. And God says, now that you've followed me, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham chuckles and says, maybe you don't understand. Have you ever said that to God? Maybe you don't understand. See, my wife is barren. We've been trying to have kids. We've been to every fertility specialist. It ain't happening for us. There's no way I could become a great nation. I don't have any offspring there. I don't have any heirs. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation, one who comes from your own loins. And then he walks with God, and guess what? It doesn't happen. Decades go by. He just gets older and older and older. And the scripture describes it by now. Barren Sarah, the wife of Abraham, she's been barren her whole life. She's now 90 and he's 100. And I love the way the King James describes him. It says, when he was old and as good as dead. <laughs> now, I don't know how you want to understand that. They're going to have a kid and Abraham's as good as dead. Get it? Okay, this is before pharmaceuticals changed all of this. <laughs> Abraham is old and as good as dead. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. And guess what? He gives him a son. And then as his son grows up, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that son, the apple of your eye, the promise, the one who is going, that I said, I told you he's going to be a great nation I want you to take him up the mountain and put him to death as a sacrifice to me. Okay, God, have you been drinking? <laughs> what are you talking about? All of this, my whole life dedicated to this, and you say, let's just end it right now? That makes no sense. But what Abraham had no way of knowing is that God was actually teaching us a lesson. He was showing us that the Son of God is coming, that God is going to have one Son, only one Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the head of a great nation, and He is going to sacrifice that one Son for us. That's what the story of Abraham and Isaac is about, and Abraham had no way of understanding that. And of course, God spared Isaac, but Abraham had to obey Guys, so many times we feel like God doesn't make any sense. For us, 
Maybe it involves saying no to an opportunity that's just everything you've ever dreamed of, but it's going to mean sacrificing your values. It's going to mean being away from your family too much. It's going to mean you're not going to be able to serve the Lord in the same ways. It's going to mean you're going to have to compromise in a whole bunch of ways, but you're going to have everything you ever dreamed of. And God says, listen, I know it doesn't make sense to you, but my dream for your life is better than your dream for your life. Trust me. And we got to trust him. Now, let me be clear. When I'm talking about obeying God, even when it doesn't make sense, I'm not talking about some harebrained idea you had while you were in the shower, okay? And, and I'm not talking about somebody who came to you and said, I have a word from God for you, okay? If, if somebody tells you to do something and it's crazy, don't do it. If, if you get this dream, go, you know, God said he's going to bless me, and the way he's going to bless me is I'm going to become an astronaut, and you just head off to Houston. God's probably not calling you to be an astronaut, right? But if it comes from his word, obey, because his word is always true. His word is always right, and he knows you, and he speaks to us from his word. One more thing, and this is maybe the hardest one, and then we'll close. God calls us to obey him even when it hurts to do so. Not even when we're afraid it might hurt, when it hurts. Hebrews chapter 5, real quick, back, of the, back toward 1 John again. Go to Hebrews, it's just a couple books left from 1 John. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. And let me read to you verse 8. It's speaking about Jesus. Jesus, okay? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus, although he was a son, the only begotten son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus, from his suffering, grew. And, and, you know, one of my favorite passages is in the beginning of the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How do I get to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Through various trials. So rejoice. Guys, suffering is not always something to be avoided disobedience to God is something that is always to be avoided. There's just no way around it. Being a Christian means being a follower of Jesus. And if we're really in Christ, we'll be getting better and better at walking like Him. Not perfect, not this side of heaven, but growing and learning and being stretched and becoming and being molded into the image of Christ day by day as we walk with him. Now ask yourself this question, is that me? And it's important, guys. Is that me? Am I actually walking like Jesus walked? Am I actually walking with Jesus? Or have I just sort of waved at Jesus and said, yes, I believe your religious ideas and now I'm going to go on my own way and do my own thing? Jesus says that if you are his disciple, you will do the will of his Father. That's real Christianity. That's what God's calling us to. And that's the kind of life that will bless us and not only us, but everyone we come in contact with. A life of obedience. So, who is driving the car in your life? 
Who's calling the shots in your life? What needs to change in your life for you to become more of a follower of Jesus Christ? Why not lay all of that at his feet and make that your sacrifice? Lord, from this day forward, I live for you. Let's stand and we'll pray together.